Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I want to start, and then I'll pick up your phone calls, but I want to start with my rant that I posted over at HartmanReport.com. When does the greed stop? And, you know, it's basically every aspect of American life now has been corrupted by greed, and maybe you can add to this list, but... Uh, you know, the whole point of government, the reason why governments are instituted among men, right, is to protect the rights of individuals from and society as a whole from predators, from, you know, predatory people, predatory institutions. We used to enforce laws that protected our small businesses. We used to have a, a small business landscape across America. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, as a, as a young person walking around in Lansing or East Lansing or any town, I mean, I traveled all over the country, hitchhiked out to San Francisco in 68. You would visit a small town or any town and you knew where you were. It was the Lansing, Lansing Bank and the, you know, Jacobson's Furniture Store and, and uh, Johnson's Five and Dime and, and the local bookstore, the, the Book Nook Books. And, They've all been replaced by national chains, right? Now it's uh, Barnes & Noble or Olive Garden or Marriott, and that's it, you know, and, and Wells Fargo is, or Chase. You know, we passed laws against this, and Reagan stopped enforcing them. In 1983, Reagan explicitly stopped enforcing our antitrust laws. No president since then, until Joe Biden, just two weeks ago, issued an executive order saying, let's start enforcing these laws again. Nobody had been enforcing them. We once enforced laws that said if a church or a religious leader was preaching politics in the pulpit, they would lose their tax-exempt status. But TV and radio turned a bunch of preachers into, into millionaires, and the greedy ones among them reached out to politicians and said, hey, let's, let's cut a deal. In fact, the broker for that deal back in the 1980s was the Christian advisor to the Reagan administration and the Reagan-Bush campaigns a fellow by the name of George W. Bush. And he, he created this mind meld between these right-wing preachers and the Republican Party that lasts to this day. And as a result, because of this corruption of our churches by politics, exactly as James Madison predicted, churches in America are in free fall, and it's not just because of COVID, because Americans have become cynical about religion, and people like Pat Robertson and Franklin Graham are, are fabulously rich, rich beyond your imaginings. Pat Robertson is a billionaire. We have enforced laws, we, you know, we once enforced laws that required rich people and profitable corporations to pay their fair share of taxes so that average working people's taxes were low. And I'm going to get into a story that really backs this up in just a minute. But, but, you know, basically greedy people and their businesses they ran bought a bunch of politicians, eventually bought the entire Republican Party and a mansion cinema little piece of the or good size piece, actually, the Democratic Party. And thus drilled literally thousands of holes into our tax code so that billionaires now pay between one and three percent, uh, the equivalent of income taxes on their wealth, and you know, you and I are paying 30%, 20%, 30%, whatever it may be, and the GOP now is fighting appropriating money 
to pay auditors with the IRS to catch these billionaire tax cheats and big corporations. We once enforced our laws that required a semblance of fidelity among our courts to the, to the Congress that wrote those laws. We once had courts that enforced those laws. Now we've got courts that are packed with right-wing stooges who have been put there by nonprofits funded by billionaires, specifically to act in the interests of the billionaires, telling us that, you know, money, corporations are people and money is speech. And, and no, there's no race problem in the United States. And if states want to pass laws again, I mean, it just goes on and on. We once had a workforce that was largely protected by democracy in the workplace, something that we call unions. Now we've got a majority of the states that have gone to uh, right to work for less laws. And, and unionization is at 6% in the private sector in America. And by the way, when I was, I was researching this uh, topic for this rant that I was writing yesterday afternoon, and, and you Google right to work, and every single, the first 20, 30 hits that you get are all right-wing sites talking about unions are bad, unions are predatory, right to work means you don't be forced, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's insane. We once had free or nearly free college and trade school for all Americans who wanted it. And then Reagan ended free college in California as the governor. And then he came, became president and basically ended free college all across the United States. And now you've got an entire generation so crushed by debt by student loan debt that they can't afford to buy a house, start a family, have children, start a small business. This is something, by the way, that is not happening in any other developed country in the world. No other developed country in the world has an entire generation with one and a half trillion dollars in debt from just going to damn college or trade school. We once had laws requiring hospitals and health insurance companies to be nonprofits. I remember back in the early 70s, I was running a company in Michigan. We had a, a, an herbal tea company and, and all, potpourris and smoking mixtures and all kinds of stuff. It was called Woodley Herber. And, and I was paying, at my recollection, and I'm pretty sure I'm pretty clear about this, is I, we were paying $30 per month per person for, for full comprehensive Blue Cross Blue Shield health insurance. Because Blue Cross Blue Shield in Michigan was nonprofit, and all three hospitals in Lansing, St. Lawrence, Sparrow, and Ingham Medical were all nonprofit. And Nixon and Reagan worked to blow those laws up, and now 30 bucks won't even cover the copay to get your temperature taken at your doctor's office. We once had an election system where people were only removed from the voting rolls if they died or if they moved out of state. Now you've got a situation where, you know, Jeb Bush removed 94,000 African-Americans from the voting rolls just in time for his brother's election in 2000, which is how George won Florida. And Brian Kemp purged 340,134 mostly African-Americans from the voting rolls so that he could beat Stacey Abrams by 55,000 votes in 2018. And now you've got 17 states that have passed laws, 28 laws, making this entirely legal. The Apostle Paul wrote to his follower Timothy that they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare for the love of money is the root of all evil. But today, the love of money is celebrated. Billionaires are our new rock stars, our astronauts. Tax dodging means you're smart. And people crushed by debt and struggling to get by without decent wages and benefits are mocked as losers and takers. Our government has been corrupted by big money. There is one piece of legislation in Congress right now that would take a bite out of that that would offer public funding and financing of elections and would reduce the power of big money, dark money in our elections. And that's the For the People Act, which is being filibustered right now by Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, and maybe a few others. This is what Ted Kennedy had to say about this situation. He was talking specifically, they were trying to raise the minimum wage from $5.50 an hour to $7.25 an hour. And this is what he said on the floor of the United States Senate. $240 billion in tax breaks for corporations, $36 billion in tax breaks for small businesses, increase in productivity, 42% over the last 10 years. But do you think there's any increase in the minimum wage? No. What is the price? We asked the other side. What is the price that you want? from these working men and women. 
What cost? How much more do we have to give to the private sector and the business? How many billion dollars more are you asking? Are you requiring? When does the greed stop? There you go. Ted Kennedy, the liberal lion of the Senate. Amazing. And then, you know, Governor Spencer Cox of Utah is speaking out. And the Biden stimulus is financing Republican tax cuts for the rich. It's mind boggling. It's just another variation on that. I'll get into that. This is the Tom Hartman program. And when does the greed stop? Pat in Sacramento. Hey, Pat, you guys got the heat a couple days ago, didn't you? <laughs> We've had quite a bit of heat. Yeah. But yeah, I had an idea about the judges giving san- sanctions in Michigan to the people that filed the frivolous lawsuits. Oh, yeah. Wood. I think the only person who's been seriously covering that is Rachel Maddow in the you know mainstream media. But uh, she's been doing a great yeah, job should, of it. They should really cover it more. And I was thinking maybe one of the sanctions could be that every single one of those lawyers had to go on TV in the state of Michigan. I don't know. If she can enforce it anywhere else and apologize to the American people for lying to them. Or if they can't do, you know, if we can't do that, we could put them in the stocks. You know, the, the stocks is where they, they would, uh, you know, uh, you put your head through the hole and you put, you put your arms <laughs> through the hole and, and you stand, you know, you're kind of locked down there for, for, the, for yeah. a few yeah, hours. One of, I, yeah, one of the restitutions should be apologizing to all the people that they've lied to and, and you know, all the people they've affected by this. I, that uh, was just an idea. I absolutely agree, and I think that that's a brilliant idea, and I, I am totally supportive of it. Pat, thank okay. you. That's, that's, a, that's a good thank one. You. I like it. Time for the stocks. <laughs> if, if no apology is forthcoming, Paul in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, thanks for watching us on Free Speech. What's up? Hey, Tom. I just finished your book, Cracking the Code awesome book. I learned a Thank lot you. from yeah, it. Yeah, I wrote that book, uh, what, uh, 12 years ago? I think I would, yeah. uh, you know, the, I would tweak it a little bit today, but it's still a good, solid, a lot of good, solid content in it. So, what's up? It's, it's a great book. Well, in this book, I figured out communication is subconscious. Most of it, yeah. you. Yeah. So, when we say redirect, when we say redistribute wealth, people are subconsciously hearing stealing. Taking something from somebody and giving it back to somebody else. They don't like it. They don't know why they don't like it. They just don't. Well, that's why redistribute wealth is a phrase that the right uses, not the left. Right. So we use redirect wealth. No. Well, actually, I'm not sure what we use. It's that's that's. Well, we should be using redirect wealth. I I got over fourteen thousand followers, and I've thrown that out there, and one hundred percent people like that better than redistribute wealth. Yeah. Yeah, and it sounds was a, good. It was a fairly decent survey. It was 300 some people participated in it. I would, I would instead say something like, you know, support working people or, you know, uh, establish well, that's a, what we direct, a that's you know, what we social safety net. What it does is you force your, you use your tax code to force rich people to redirect their wealth back into the corporations by paying better wages and better safer working conditions. You do that by raising the tax code. Uh-huh. If you raise the tax code to 50% or better, after three million bucks, they're not going to want to pay that, and that's what we used to do. That's how we used to. Yeah, that's how it was pre nineteen eighty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, before Ronald Reagan, exactly. And we used we used the tax code forced rich people to redirect their wealth. It forced people to open up companies that were losing money for tax write offs. All kinds of different things happened. That's why we had a prosperous middle class because we forced rich people to redirect their wealth by using the tax code. Yeah. We need to do that again. That's how we had the pros- most prosperous middle class in our country. The tax code was a big part of that. Well, it was the most prosperous uh, up until the 1980s. We had the most prosperous middle class in the world. Right now, China does, oddly enough. Yeah, well, that's and, the most prosperous country in the world, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and they're making their money sending, sending, selling stuff to us. It's you know, manufacturing yeah. our things. Paul, thank you for the call. Spot on. I like it. Redirect. It's our hour together. Russ in Hickory Hill, Illinois. Hey, Russ, what's up? Ah, yeah, Tom. You know, before I get to my rant, I agree with the unions. I got hired in 1971 on a beer job. We pay two bucks a month for eye, dental, and, and doctor for your whole family. Wow. That's why I call. Yeah. And yeah, the union was bucks, probably paying bucks 20 a bucks a month. You were probably paying a, a piece of that, right? Well, you know, I don't know. Our union dues. Yeah. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Yeah, but you got eye, dental, and doctor. Yeah. But what I called, 
you know, we listen to these right wingers in that. What two states ain't doing the uh, voting rights? You always hear 48 states, and we all know, Tom, there's 25 states that are never going to enact no voting rights restrictions. Because I tell you right now, like you said, Joe Manson, Kristen Sinema, the sentiment in Illinois, they'd be gone after 2024 because Howard Dean said that too. He might win, but he's not going to be a re- Democrat no more. Yeah. After 24, well, and she's not going to win. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, I think I think uh, Kristen Cinema has just uh, destroyed her own political career. But what but, two states are though, Tom? Do you know? What? I beg your pardon. What two states are not enacting voting rights? You always hear 48. Oh, we have 50. I frankly don't know. I, I, but that they're not enacting in 48 states. Voter suppression laws have been proposed in their legislatures. They've only passed 17 states. There are 23 states that in all probability will have them by the end of next month, um, you know, given the legislative calendars and schedules and things. Um, typically, there's I, I think that there's roughly 30 states that are solidly Republican controlled and around 20 states that are solidly democratically controlled. Um, I, there's actually six or eight states that are kind of in, in between that go back and forth. So those numbers are not you know, clearly accurate. But right now, the majority of states uh, numerically are controlled by Republicans, and that's why they control the Senate. And the reason that they control the majority of the states is because back in the 70s, the Republican Party made a very strategic decision to move into low population red states where with small investments, just a few million dollars, uh, you can, you, for a few million dollars you can do in Wyoming or in Montana what would cost a hundred million dollars to do in California or New York. So they moved into these small states population-wise where the media markets were very inexpensive and invested heavily in local right-wing talk radio, in local media, in uh, buying local newspapers, taking them over, running right-wing editorials, building out local uh, what they call policy institutes, state policy institutes, local you know right-wing think tanks that then get letters to the editor and op-eds published in all the local newspapers, and they solidly took over these states. And uh, you know it was a it was a brilliant strategy that the that you know right-wing billionaires put together as a result of the Powell memo in 1971, and that's what we're living with. And the question is, how long is it going to take, or what's it going to take for people to wake the hell up? And I think that. There's a possibility, and in fact, I've been thinking about writing one of my op-eds next week about this, that um, if you look at what very often historically has brought down cults, usually typically religious cults, but sometimes political cults as well, it has been disease. Um, You know, down in Mexico, for example, when when Cortez marched into... um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the city, but you know, in, in Central America, and took down, and I, as I recall, the guy's name was Quetzalcoatl, the, uh, the, the, the Mayan or Incan king. Um, half, uh, more than half, I think it was 80 or 90 percent of the city had died from the flu that preceded him, which he brought to that country. And so what had happened is people who thought that this guy, the leader of their country uh, and, and of their religion, was a descendant of the god, they, they lost their faith in him and basically fled. And, and so Cortez, with just a couple of dozen men, was able to conquer literally an entire nation and take home you know, ships full of gold. So I, I think that as this virus starts wiping out red states and people realize that you know, Fox News and Tucker Carlson and these guys on the right and Donald Trump have been lying to them all this time about, oh, it's just a bad flu and it's nothing to worry about and you, know, the, you don't need the vaccine and it's, gonna, you know, it's a bad thing. I think they're going to wake the hell up because they and their friends are dying around them or getting terribly, terribly sick. And that's going to be the toast for the Republican Party. Now, their bet, Russ, the Republicans' bet, is that that's going to so harm the economy, it's going to slow down our economy, that people will throw out the Democrats in 2022. We'll see which way it goes. Russ, thanks a lot for the call. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our selection today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West by Christopher Ketchum. This is from Chapter 1. It's about halfway through the chapter. He's talking about Bernard DeVoto. DeVoto was the first major historian of the West who was also an environmentalist and an activist, the first chronicler of what Wallace Stenger called the West's curious desire to rape itself. DeVoto was a Westerner raised in Utah. He suffered in the provincialism and intolerance of Mormon country, went east to study and then teach at Harvard, settled in Cambridge, but never forgot the beauty of his native ground. Loving the land and history, said a magazine profile, but loathing the society. His histories, novels, criticism, his essays in Harper's Magazine, where for 20 years he wrote the oldest column in American journalism, Easy Chair, pointed to always west. His trilogy, published in the 1940s, The Year of Decision Across the Wide Missouri and the Course of Empire, garnered the Pulitzer, the Bancroft, and the National Book Award. Widely celebrated, DeVoto used his position to become his generation's most outspoken defender of the public lands. He called the West a plundered province, a resource colony for corporations and absentee landlords who practiced, quote, an economy of liquidation. He was broad in his assault on the liquidators. He went after the timbermen, the mining companies, the stockmen, the cattle barons, the oilmen and gasmen, the overgrazers, the deforesters, the denuders, the profiteers of gold rushes and grass rushes. He named the bankers and congressmen who abetted the plundering, the western hogs, he called them. They'd been busy for a century laying waste to the west. Long before the public domain was vested with any permanence legally in the hands of the American people, before there was a consideration of the land itself or any environmental ethic, the West had been torn up, beaten down, subjected to the greed and profligacy of the commodity users. Ironically, the users in their race to liquidate helped drive the creation of the public land system we know today as they proved the need for federal stewardship to stop their abuses. Massive timber frauds in the 19th century, the largest land fraud seen in the West, led directly to the establishment of the Forest Service in the 20th century, its purpose to stop deforestation. Out-of-control cattle numbers in the steppe, overgrazing that turned the fragile soil to dust, led directly to the federal grazing regulatory system that eventually became the BLM. When in 1946 the commodity users conspired to destroy the public land system, the system in which devotos saw the only hope for Western conservation and preservation, he stood to oppose them. Quote, he was the first conservationist in nearly half a century, except for Franklin D. Roosevelt, to command a national audience, said Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., a student of his at Harvard. No one did more in the post-war years to rouse public opinion against the spoilers than DeVoto. DeVoto and Schlesinger had seen firsthand what unregulated industry could wreak in the arid lands when they drove cross-country together in the spring of 1940 and entered western Kansas past the 100th meridian. These were the last years of the Dust Bowl before FDR's soil conservation programs and the return rains of the 40s could heal the land. Wrote DeVoto, a cemetery was 10 inches deep in sand. Half the headstones had toppled into it and been partly covered. Sagging shacks that had been farmhouses had their windows blown out and dust was two or four or six feet deep against their western walls and a foot deep against the far wall. A repulsive dust as fine as sifted flour. Now, six years after that trip with Schlesinger, DeVoto was confronted with the West's cattle barons, 
the liquidators of the grass, who were hell-bent on reducing the region to the same mess of dust. In 1946, the Joint Committee on Public Lands of the American National Livestock Association met in Salt Lake City to discuss the goal of undermining what few regulations had been placed on livestock operators under the newly formed Bureau of Land Management. The stock growers' ambition went further than mere deregulation. They hatched a plan with the help of friends in Congress to begin moving all federal land, the BLM and Forest Service domain, as well as the national parks, into the control of the states. The plan evolved through 1946, 47, 48, with legislation making its way on Capitol Hill. Devoto covered the story for Harper's. He cautioned that the stock growers were attempting, quote, one of the biggest land grabs in American history. The public lands are first to be transferred to the states on the wholly justified assumption that there should be a state government not wholly compliant to the desires of stock growers. It could be pressured into compliance, he wrote in Harper's. Nothing in history suggests the, the states are adequate to protect their own resources or even want to or suggest that cattlemen and sheepmen are capable of regulating themselves even for their own benefit, still less the public's." End quote. The long-term plan, he said, was to get rid of the public lands altogether, to place the common possession of the American people into private hands. The livestock industry went on the attack, mounted a PR campaign to discredit Devoto, and pressured Harper's to cease its support. Unmoved, the magazine continued for three years, to publish his relentless exposés of the intrigues in the state houses and in the Western Caucus. Devoto had convinced the editors, when no other publication that mattered in the East cared, that the threat of such land transfer was an existential one. This Land by Christopher Ketchum. And welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you on the line with us, our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books. His most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Uh, you can tweet him at Prof. Wolf or at democracy at W-A-R-K. And uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. I'm curious your thoughts on inflation. And we, I know we've talked about it before, but there's two takes that I caught this morning. Uh, the first is a piece in the New York Times suggesting that Japan is not experiencing inflation right now and that this inflation that we're experiencing might be transitory and we could actually slide back into a Japanese kind of, you know, they, they've been in a kind of a malaise for two or three decades. The other being a piece that I heard on NPR where they were talking about how the thing that set up the inflation back in the 80s was a sudden increase in essentially low-wage workers, or excuse me, the thing that was depressing inflation, that, that ultimately killed inflation, was a sudden increase in low-wage workers. And that was China coming online as, a, as an industrial power offering you know, free labor to the world. In the United States, the second wage earner households, women coming into the workforce in, in a big way. This was in the, in the late 70s and the 80s. And the boomers, uh, you know, entering the workforce in large numbers in the early 70s. And that those trends are now reversing. I'm, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on what, how does this all fit together? It seems like a jigsaw puzzle to me. Yes, and, and the jigsaw puzzle starts with the mistaken notion that the people in charge, the people who are secretaries of economics or of the treasury or heads of the central bank, people like Janet Yellen in this country, Powell at the Fed and so on, that they have a, a kind of magic toolbox. And as soon as they announce what it is they want to happen, well, presto, they have the tools to make all of that happen. That's never been true. That's a fantasy. Uh, things like inflations are shaped by many, many forces. Some of them the government has control over. Many of them it does not. So, for example, the, the story you heard this morning has its grain of truth. You will not have an inflation if suddenly the world has access to highly skilled, well-disciplined uh, industrial workers whose wages are way below what has been the norm uh, for the last 20, 30 years. That's what the entrance of China in the 80s and so on, that's what it was all about. And that was more than enough to sweep away whatever tools were being used uh, to try to push the economy in another way. 
number one. Number two, when you hear officials telling you something is going to be transitory, I have a suggestion. If they know the future, they're in the wrong business, and they could be billionaires by telling us what's going to happen. Nobody knows the future. Nobody knows how long the current inflation in the U.S. will last, how bad it will get, uh, and the rest is make-believe designed to solve certain political problems these folks have, but nobody should take this uh, very seriously. Last thing. Underlying economic realities back in the 1970s and 80s were this. There was a big powerhouse emerging on the global economic scene, the People's Republic of China. The two leading economies at the time were the United States and Japan. They used everything they could to squash the growth of China and boost their own and to continue, they hoped, in the dominant position of the two major economies. They used all the tools they have. They couldn't do it. And we live now in a world in which China is the ascending power. Japan has dropped off the competition, and the United States is trying to limit and control China and not doing a particularly good job of doing that. So the narrative that is starting to make some sense to me, and, and tell me if this is just, you know, if I'm oversimplifying or whatever, shortages generally drive up prices, surpluses generally depress prices of anything. And so in the 70s, we had a shortage of oil as a result of two Arab oil, you know, embargoes that happened as a result of war in the Middle East. And oil is central to everything else that, you know, in our economy. I mean, even our food, we grow with oil, essentially. You know, we use oil to make fertilizers and to power our machines and everything else. So the lack of oil drives up inflation. Then what comes online toward the end of the 70s and through the, throughout the 80s is China laborers and the boomer generation. So, you know, a sudden increase in the number of workers available to the world, that drives down the price of labor, which drives down inflation. And now uh, the boomers are aging out of the workplace. China is uh, having trouble getting low-wage workers outside of their, you know, the, I mean, they're enslaving people to have low-wage workers, you know, in their eastern provinces. And so it looks like there is going to be a shortage of labor, which would drive prices of labor back up, which would drive inflation again. And now we have the OPEC countries getting together and saying, oh, and by the way, we're going to create another oil shortage and drive the price of oil up because this might be our last chance to squeeze trillions of dollars in profits out of the world before the whole world goes carbon free. Is that making any sense? Absolutely, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to complicate your story by mentioning a couple of other things <laughs> that have to be uh, understood. Sure. Most important is the growing inequality. You are shifting wealth, and we've been doing it for 50 years. You're shifting wealth from the mass of people to a very small, super-rich elite. The mass of people cannot pay higher prices, and that puts a damper on corporations who want to charge higher prices. That, too, has to be factored in particularly here in the United States, which has unfortunately taken the lead in becoming more unequal. And there's nothing happening to really change that, which is why the government has to step in and literally boost consumption because you're impoverishing your working class. I mean, all of these things are going to determine it, and the, the rest of it is really lots of BS designed to uh, pump up the notion that the thing is under control. It isn't, and that the people in charge can manage it. The truth is, they can't. Right. And we're watching a system unfold and living with it because we don't take the major structural changes uh, that are needed if you're really going to change the system. Yeah, I, I get I get all those things, and it makes perfect sense. And But that then seems to almost play into the Republican talking point, which is basically if the working people of America can't afford to buy the things that they want to buy and thus, you know, don't drive up prices with demand, 
and then the government comes in and says, here, we're going to give you $300 a month for having kids, or here, we're going to have, you know, we're going to give you a stimulus, or hey, we're going to build bridges and $3 trillion. Suddenly, workers are making more money. There's a lot more money sloshing around. There's more demand. That drives demand for goods. That drives inflation. And, you know, according to Republican theology, that's a bad thing. But then the flip side of that, and this is where I get confused, is, you know, this article by Ben Dooley in today's New York Times where he says, you have to have a certain level of inflation, that a certain level of inflation is important. It's a good thing that Japan has suffered for 20 years, 30 years, because of an absolute lack of inflation there. So can you, yeah, you know, make sense of sure. all that? It, yes, inflation has to go up a little, not a lot, a little. Because it's, think of it, it's like oil greasing the wheels. Inflation means that the businessman or woman uh, can with confidence, invest, expand the factory, produce more output, because not only uh, can they hope to sell that stuff, but they can reasonably hope to sell it at a higher price than it fetches today. So an inflation can be a nice kind of stimulus, if you like. But the, always the danger is that because it can be nice doesn't mean it'll stay at a nice, reasonable 2 3 4%. It can spin out of control. It has happened dozens of times in the history of capitalism over the last 300 years. Uh, and the notion that the Federal Reserve or any other central bank can easily manage that is belied by the history. So yeah. you've got to be very, very careful here. Too many variables. If you don't change the basic system, fooling around with one or another of the variables will not solve your problem. I totally get it. I totally get it. Professor Richard Wolf, thanks so much for dropping by today. Okay, Tom. Thank you. Yep. Democracyatwork.info is the website. Check it out. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. What do you think is going on with Trump and Russia and all this stuff? Uh, why is this popping up now? Just wanted to give you a heads up. This is from the Daily Poster. This one by Julia Rock, one of the reporters over there. This is David Sirota's newsletter, dailyposter.com. The budget, or not, it wasn't called budget. What is the actual name of this thing? The American Rescue Plan. That was the piece of legislation that got passed a couple of months ago by budget reconciliation. Not a single Republican voted for it. And it, it's about a trillion dollars. In fact, it's, I, I think it might have been a little more than that. And, and uh, 200 million of it. Or excuse me, 200 billion of it was direct aid to the states. So the Democrats passed this legislation to stimulate the economy, keep people above water, uh, you know, give people another 300 bucks a week on their unemployment, all this kind of stuff. And there was 200 billion dollars going to the states because state governments' revenues were down, because tax collections were down, because businesses were shut down. And a lot of people were unemployed and, the, you know, unemployed people don't pay income taxes. And when, you know, restaurants and stores and things are shut down during a pandemic, uh, they're not making a profit. And so they're not paying income taxes to the states. And so the states were, were hurting. But they built into this $200 billion grant to the states. They built in a provision that says you may not use this money for giving tax cuts to rich people. I mean, it literally says that you may not do this. But they're doing it anyway. I, I mean, it's just breathtaking, right? Uh, the Arizona legislature just passed a $1.9 billion income tax cut designed to benefit the wealthy with 93% of the benefit going to the top 20% of earners and over half going to the top 1%. This, again, from Julia Rock's piece in today's dailyposter.com. Ohio passed a web Republicans in Ohio. I should, I should preface this always with Republicans because that's who's... Ohio passed $1.7 billion in tax cuts, over half of which will flow to the top 5% of earners, and over a third of which will flow to the top 1% in Ohio. And Wisconsin, and we'll see if uh, Governor Evers uh, you know, vetoes this, Wisconsin passed more than $2 billion, because the Republicans control their legislature there because of gerrymandering, Wisconsin passed more than $2 billion in tax cuts, about three-quarters of which will go to individuals who make 100 grand or more. 
And now the big question is, will the Treasury Department step in and enforce the law? And, uh, you know, sadly, the uh, Treasury Department has indicated that they are not going to aggressively, you know, enforce this in the past. And frankly, I think this is a test. This is the law. So, you know, to the Biden administration and to Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, are you going to enforce the law? Are you going to stop the money to these states? And I believe that's the remedy. If they use that money to hand off to the billionaire Republican donors in those states, because that's what's going on. You've got, you know, in, in Wisconsin, in Ohio, in, in uh, what was the third state? Uh, in, in all three of these, let me get back to my article here. Arizona, was it? Yeah, Ohio. Yeah, Arizona. Arizona, Ohio, and Wisconsin. Now, you've got Republican legislators who are taking millions of dollars in aggregate from wealthy people in their states to keep them in power and to keep them getting them reelected and pay for their campaigns and, and subsidize their lifestyles, essentially. And the way that they're paying back these donors is with giant tax cuts. So is the Treasury Department, will the Treasury Department have the courage to enforce this? You know, stay tuned. I'll bring you up to date on whether they do or not. But this is rather bizarre, I would say, if nothing else. So anyhow, let me pick up your phone calls here. Kevin in Santa Rosa, California. Hey, Kevin, what's up? Hi. Uh, I'm calling because PG&E wants to reduce the amount that they pay uh, people who have rooftop solar for um, an electricity they sell back to the grid. And they want to charge $70 a month to be hooked up to the grid. Oh, jeez. If you have rooftop solar. This is what so, happens when you've got a power company that is, owned, that is a giant corporation as opposed to a public utility. Right. Now, there, there's a public utilities commission, and their uh, mission is to protect the populace from the utilities. But for decades, they've been protecting the utilities from the populace. Right. Uh, Loretta Lynch, who's former head of the PUC, um, a couple of days ago on a different show, suggested <clears throat> that uh, since Gavinism just appointed a bunch of new members to the PUC, that people call their state senator and <clears throat> uh, tell them not to vote on um, confirming the PUC commissioners, uh, which is a five-year term, until after they vote on the rooftop solar issue. Hmm. And then if they vote to support PG&E, don't confirm them. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a plan, Kevin. Is there a website where California listeners can find more information? No, not that I, not that I know of. Okay. Um, so, should, but, but call your so state senator. Call your state senator. Yeah, call, right. call your state senator, you, and if you don't know who represents you in the Senate, in the California Senate, if you're a California citizen, uh, you can easily, you know, just plug it into a search engine and find out and, and get that information right. and go with it. Okay, got it. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Larry in Asheville, North Carolina. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? Well, I'm extremely disappointed and discouraged by Biden's, uh, President Biden's comments when he was with Merkel on Cuba. Mm. Uh, he's, I've, I've liked so far what he's been doing on helping people out with COVID relief and getting out of Afghanistan. And then all of a sudden he comes and calls uh, Cuba a failed state and saying that, you know, communism doesn't work while we're 80% of everything we buy in Walmart from communist China, Vietnam, and then saying even socialism is not the answer. And he's standing next to Angela Merkel, whose country on the spectrum of socialism is way above ours, and forgetting that an island nation may need some form of socialism uh, more than uh, cowboy capitalist America. Yeah. Uh, wondering if you might, the question is, wondering if you might know if there's any way Congress can go ahead and end the embargo or get it back to the Obama era level. Without Congress Biden. could pass a law forcing that, yes. But, you know, whether they will or not, I mean, that, the problem you have is that the Republicans are going to be absolutely unified in opposing any, any, any kind of anything, rapprochement of any sort with Cuba. 
And you've got a few Democrats, particularly the Florida Democrats, who are basically intimidated by the Cuban Americans, uh, largely in Florida, who are still hoping that their parents and grandparents' estates and mansions and, and uh, you know, whatnot, uh, apartment buildings and, and whatnot in, in Cuba can be uh, recovered, can be clawed back from the Cuban government. I mean, they're still trying to do that. They're, uh, they're still trying to, to say, you know, we need to take down the Cuban government. We need to give, our, you know, give back that, that stuff to, to, the, to the wealthy uh, people who had it. And uh, A, that's not going to happen. And uh, B, I, I agree with you, Larry. This, I, you know, I think in this regard, Biden is still living in the Cold War, and I wish he would, um, you know, wake up and pay attention to what's, you know, really going on here. Because uh, is he is he running for mayor of Miami? When, when is the Democrats just going to write off that voting block and I know just walk away? I know it's uh, I I completely get it, Larry, uh, and and it's as frustrating to me as as it apparently is to you. And I'm I'm very hopeful that the Biden administration gets with the plan. You know, I mean, he was in the room. When President Obama worked out, uh, I, I don't know a better word, uh, you know, uh, uh, moderating the, the embargo. And uh, as a consequence of that, Louise and I were able to go to Cuba and spend a, a couple of weeks there. And was I went also uh, with the Obama, with the Obama uh, guidelines. Yeah, yeah. And we need to go back to that. Larry, thank you. Springs, Michigan. Hey, Ron, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Uh, before I get to my point, real quick, the songbirds have disappeared from uh, uh, the area. The Indiana. Songbirds, songbirds are disappearing? Oh, my. They're gone. They're gone. But anyway, my point is President Biden said that uh, the demonstrations in Cuba uh, proves that communism doesn't work. And uh, it's not the perfect, uh, but if it wasn't for the generals deciding and admirals deciding that they were not going to follow a dictator into a coup d'etat, you know, it, you know, already we are in the uh, the throes of a uh, a dictatorship with the Republicans, you know, thwarting all of our our rights as voting and this and that. But we are depending on the generals to keep. And and, and I predicted this. I, I told my son this. I said, you know, it, it's going to come to uh, a civil war and it's going to. Well, the military, who, who's they're going to, who they're backing? Well, and I started right now, saying this in, in the second week of November. I was saying, you know, Donald Trump is going to try to start a war with Iran in order to provide a cover for, for you know, his efforts to hang on to the White House. And I, I, was, I was warning people about that throughout November and throughout December and into early January. And, you know, people would say, oh, you're being paranoid or, you know, hey, the, you know, it'll never happen. Well, we learned that that was something that Donald Trump actually was trying to do. He was trying to start a war with Iran, and the guy who stopped him was General Mark Milley. And one final point, if I may, Tom. Yeah. This, this goes to, you know, you said, and many people say, uh, public service, whether the draft or, uh, you know, CCC camps again, you know, this is a thing that we have to look the, the long-term goal, 40, 50 years down the line, you know, training, teaching our, son, our sons and daughters to take leadership roles like General Milley, like Secretary Lloyd. So if, if we survive that long, okay, mm -hmm. if, if this, this fragile thing still survives that long, but, you know, I'm looking long term, you know, yeah. I have hope, I have faith, just like I know you do, but I have hope. Out there, <laughs> I did. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
It's, I mean, it's, the, the, the climate situation is, is beyond oh. a crisis. And the political situation is in a crisis. And so, uh, you know, Ron, I'm, I, I'm with you. I, I, I totally get it. Michael in Memphis, Tennessee. Michael, what's on your mind today? Uh, Tom, I'm, ex I'm extremely angry, as, as my wife says. It's all the time now. I don't understand how the president of the United States and the vice president you have the White House. You have the House. You have the Senate. I don't want to hear that slim majority. I don't want to hear that because when the Republicans have the reins, they put pressure where it needs to be to get things done. Right. Biden gave this this speech that was a bunch of fluff the other day. My wife says, really good. I'm like, no, it's fluff because he didn't say what needed to be said. You know, they have to do. We keep saying they have to do something about the filibuster. Well, Mansion, you know, in cinema. Tom, there is no way that there is not pressure that can be brought to bear on those two individuals. I agree. I've been saying this. I've been tweeting about it. I wrote an op-ed about it. I've been ranting about it. There are both carrots and sticks. They could be saying, right. oh, you want a bridge named after you, Joe Manchin? Or, oh, you're on four, four committees. How'd you like to go down to two? I mean, there, there are things that Chuck Schumer can do. To, to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, there are things that Joe Biden can do to Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, and I'm hopeful just Michael, that behind the scenes that is what's going on. But I'm I'm not seeing any evidence I, of it, which alarms me. Yeah, I don't see it, and I look at it, Tom. I'm a black man who lives in Memphis, Tennessee, in the South, which is as backwards and inbred as you can get. Yep. The laws that they're passing in these states, and Tennessee is on deck to do the exact same thing that they're doing, they will never affect Joe Biden or anybody in his family that looks like him. They'll never have to worry about it. Kamala Harris has money. It'll never affect her. Chuck Schumer, her dying science, it'll never affect any of these Democrats. That's why they, that's why they, they don't care. See, they can I don't get think they TV don't care. Say, well, we're going to get this I, I, done. I, I, no, hang on, hang on, Michael. There is, you know, if, if Joe Manchin is pushing back and saying, okay, if you don't like what I'm saying, then I'm just going to become a Republican, which is what the governor of West Virginia did, Jim Justice. He was elected as a Democrat, and when Trump got elected, he flipped and became a Republican, and he's still the governor. And if Manchin is saying to Schumer and President Biden, you know, you push me too hard, I'm going to become a Republican, and you're going to lose control of the Senate instantly, how do you deal with that? Yeah, but think, they don't have it now, Tom. I mean, so you do nothing. That's the thing. Well, they do, they so do have do it nothing. now because they can, still pass something, they can still pass things through reconciliation as long as they've got Manchin on their side. If they lose Manchin, they can't pass things through reconciliation. I'm not I justifying mean, what they're doing. I'm, I'm you know, as, as I said, I'm, I'm agreeing no, I with you, I understand Michael. what you're saying. But, but there's, but a, there's a lot of moving pieces can't vote. Yeah, but a person that can't vote, Tom, doesn't care about reconciliation. Yeah. That doesn't matter to them. They're not a, you're not a citizen. I mean, you don't have any rights. You can't participate in the most basic thing in this country. So to say that, oh, well, they can't, you can't vote, but you know what? Um, they got money for the state. I don't care about a bridge if I can't vote. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm completely with you. And, you know, putting a carve out into the filibuster is the least that should be done for things, for constitutional issues like voting rights. I am completely with you. Michael, thank you for the call. Our book for today in the Tom Harmon Book Club is a Proof of Collusion, How Trump Betrayed America by Seth Abramson. This is from the chapter one, page 14. Up until 1987, Donald Trump was not regarded as a particularly political public figure. However, in 1987, he published The Art of the Deal and took a trip to Moscow, one or both of which sent him in the direction of a political career. Trump's trip to Moscow in 1987 comes at the invitation of Russia's ambassador to the United States, Yuri Dubinin. In Moscow, Trump stays at the Lenin Suite of the Hotel National, which, as Jonathan Chait of New York Magazine notes, certainly would have been bugged in 1987. Trump holds meetings on the possible construction of a Trump hotel with Soviet officials, coming away from the meetings certain that the officials are eager to do business with him. On returning to the United States, Trump spends nearly $100,000 on politically charged newspaper ads attacking American allies like Japan and Saudi Arabia for spending too little on their own defense. He urges America to, to, quote, tax these wealthy nations, end quote, and shortly thereafter makes a high-profile trip to New Hampshire, the sort of trip that is often considered a prelude to a presidential bid. Trump's 1987 bid for a Trump hotel in Moscow falls through, according to the Washington Post, only because Trump was, quote, preoccupied with other business projects. 
Once Trump's companies recover from a string of bankruptcies in 91 and 92, he returns his attention to the Russian market. In 96, he returns to Moscow with Howard Lorber, one of his two closest friends, according to the Post. Together, they scout locations for an office tower and eventually find a location for the tower and a prospective Russian business partner. Trump announces plans for a Trump International branded building in November of 96. The deal will see him investing $250 million in licensing his name to two buildings. We have an understanding we'll be doing it, Trump says. At the press conference promoting the deal, he says he doesn't think he's ever been as impressed with the potential of a city as I have been with Moscow. However, Trump has a problem. American banks will no longer lend him money, citing his track record for paying back only pennies on the dollar, what the banks called the Donald risk. In 1997, though, no construction has begun on Trump's hotel, hope for Moscow projects. The New Yorker is writing about the breadth of Trump's hopes for Moscow investment and business connections. Trump's plan for the expansion of his real estate portfolio into Russia go well beyond a single Trump International Hotel. Trump envisions a much larger series of investments. He tells The New Yorker, it would be skyscrapers and hotels. We're working with the local government, the mayor of Moscow and the mayor's people. So far, they've been very responsive. As Trump's 1996 plans finally fall through for good, Russia begins a period of political upheaval that sees the nation led by five successive prime ministers appointed by Boris Yeltsin over a 15-month period in 98 and 99. The last of these prime ministers is a man by the name of Vladimir Putin. Putin, the former first deputy chairman, uh, the equivalent of deputy mayor of St. Petersburg, develops a fondness for Miss St. Petersburg, Oksana Fedorova, sometime before she is crowned Miss Russia in 2001. It's widely known that he has a picture of her in his office. After Fedorova wins the 2001 Miss Russian pageant, rumors abound, spurred in part by the presence of Putin's domestic intelligence service, the FSB, acting as security at the competition, that the pageant has been rigged so that Fedorova will win. Local media say that either the pageant was corrupt or its organizers knew instinctively it would be unwise, not politically correct, according to the Telegraph, to let anyone but Fedorova win. In winning the Miss Russia pageant, Fedorova becomes Russia's entrant to the 2002 Miss Universe pageant, an international competition owned by Donald Trump. Though the 20, 2002 pageant is scheduled to take place in Puerto Rico, anticipation for the event is high in Russia because of Putin's adoration for Fedorova and because no Russian woman has ever won the Miss Universe pageant in its half century of continuous operation. At the time of the 2002 Miss Universe pageant, Fedorova's publicly acknowledged boyfriend is Vladimir Golubev, a St. Petersburg crime boss heavily involved in the construction industry. But the scuttlebutt in Moscow is that Fedorova is actually with a different Vladimir. Uh, in a May 2002 article published immediately after the 2002 Miss Universe contest in Moscow calls Fedorova Putin's girl. There is substantial press attention on the pageant in Moscow as Fedorova wins the competition and makes pageant history as the first Miss Universe from Russia to win the contest. On November 2, 2017, an eyewitness to the judging process at the 2002 Miss Universe contest will contact this author to say that the contest was rigged. After the eyewitness's identity had been verified, the eyewitness recounts the following. After there are only 10 contestants left in the 2002 Miss Universe pageant, an elimination process that Trump directly participates in this point in the pageant's history, Trump addresses the pageant's celebrity judges and indicates that he wants Miss Russia crowned Miss Universe. The source reports Trump saying, quote, there's definitely clearly one woman out there who's head and shoulders above the rest. She's the one I'd vote for. Given the context of the statement, Trump issuing his formal instructions to the judges as they prepared for the conclusion of the pageant, as well as his demeanor while speaking, the eyewitness asserts that Trump, quote, told the judges who to vote for, adding that a subsequent conversation among the celebrity judges revealed that several had the same impression. The judges did, in fact, vote for Miss Russia, who thereby becomes Miss Universe until her dethroning 120 days later for failure to faithfully execute the duties of her office. The contest celebrity judges are later told by parties affiliated with the pageant that Fedorova has been dethroned because of unspecified criminal contact. Proof of collusion. Lowell in Salem, Oregon. Hey, Lowell, what's up? Hi, Tom. I wanted to warn you about falling into the rotating villain strategy that the Democrats appear to be using with Mansion and Cinema, mm -hmm. because there are more than just Mansion and Cinema against removing the filibuster. Oh, I know that. Diane so Feinstein Pat, has come Pat out. Leahy, 
yeah, Pat Leahy and Tom Carper are also, but they're not as loud, so nobody focuses on them. Yeah. So they'll still be a problem next time. My understanding they is they are also persuadable, that they're not, they're not uh, but drawing they did this firm in, lines in the sand, although Feinstein appears to have. But they did this in 2009 with Joe Lieberman with the public option. They claimed only he was the only obstacle. But on the Senate Finance Committee, there were five senators who voted no on the public option, which were Max Baucus, Blanche Lincoln, Kent Conrad, Bill Nelson, and Tom Carper, who is continuing biller. And these are all heavily corporate finance Democrats. So so don't fall into the rotating bill. Yeah, it's an easy shorthand for what's going on. And and I think you're right. There's there's nuance there that's important to identify. Lowell, thank you for the call and for recalibrating all of us. Thanks for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. So get out there, get active, tag your it. Have a wonderful weekend. Be good to yourself and the people around you. Thanks again for being with us today and for sharing the word about our program with your friends and contacting the the media that you're hearing this program on. Thank you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 